Well, beloved, we are still in our sermon series in Exodus, and if you'd like to find the passage for this week, we are on page 49 of our Pew Bibles, page 49. We are in Exodus chapter 11, so let me uh, read that passage as we begin. Exodus chapter 11, reading the whole chapter from verse 1 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Well, beloved, many of us know the hymn, In Christ Alone, right? In Christ Alone, my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, and my song. You know, this well-known hymn, uh, we enjoy singing it here, and it's written by Stuart Townen and Keith Getty. Uh, the song is a wonderful reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he alone saves us through his death and resurrection. It, it's a really popular song with churches worldwide. I mean, some have even called this hymn the amazing grace of our generation. You know, that's how popular and well-known it is. You know, we wouldn't expect a hymn like this to cause any controversy. Or yet, some years ago, it made the headlines for sparking a debate over some of its lyrics. You know, a Christian denomination had wanted to add the song to their new hymnal, you know, however, that hymn committee that was formed to decide which songs to add into the hymnal, that hymn committee was uncomfortable with these lines from the hymn. The lines say, To on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So the committee wasn't, wasn't comfortable with those lines, and the committee wanted to change those lines to say this, To on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So they wrote in to Townen and Getty, and Townen and Getty refused to change the lyrics of their song. And, and they said, you know, or rather Getty said sometime after that, he said to remove that line about the wrath of God was to remove an essential part of the gospel. It's to remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout scripture. So the hymn committee decided to bar the song from the hymnal. 
so that you won't find that song in their hymnal. You know, the debate over the words of this hymn reveals how some are uncomfortable with the notion of God's wrath needing to be satisfied. You know, I think the assumption that we can so easily make is that God's wrath and His judgment sound harsh and therefore are incompatible with His love. But, but I put it to us that unless we understand God's love and His wrath, you know, we, we cannot rightly understand the gospel and God's word. You know, in, in fact, it's no overstatement to say that the message of the whole Bible can be summarized in this way. So if you want a one-sentence summary of the message of the Bible, here it is. God's glory in salvation through judgment. I didn't come up with that. That's, that's from a really good book if you want to read. God's glory in salvation through judgment. That's a one-sentence summary of the whole Bible. You know, simply put, God saves by judging for His glory. God saves by judging for His glory. You know, this is also a key theme of the book of Exodus. The Lord redeems Israel, how? By bringing judgment on Egypt. And this is reflected very clearly in our passage today. So here's the big idea. God saves by judging. That's the big idea for our passage today. And we'll look at this text in two points, really. God saves, point one, and point two, by judging. <laughs> it's beginning to sound quite repetitive, isn't it? God saves by judging. But first, some context to place where we are in the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at the first nine of the ten plagues. You know, these nine, we heard, are grouped into three sets of three. You know, in the first set, the Niles turn into blood, frogs appear around, they fill, they fill Egypt, and then that's followed by countless gnats or mosquitoes. In the second set, Egypt is overrun by swarms of flies, their livestock dies, all the Egyptians suffer from boils and sores. In the third set, hail kills people and livestock and destroys crops. Locusts consumes all of what's left. A dreadful darkness then envelops the land. So three sets of three. And the plagues are more often called signs and wonders because they show God is sovereign in purpose, He's sovereign in power, He's sovereign in mercy and is sovereign over the nations. And the Lord's power and authority in these nine plagues are juxtaposed with Pharaoh's impotence, uh, with Pharaoh's sinful and stubborn refusal to let the people of Israel go. You know, despite seeing evidence again and again and again of the Lord's power and the Lord's judgment, Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his heart against the evidence. But Pharaoh's resistance, we also hear, is according to God's sovereign plan. Yeah, this is God's opportunity to display His glory by bringing a series of judgments upon Egypt. That's why we have so many plagues, because again and again, God is showing His superiority over Egypt. And the plagues show that the Lord is the almighty creator and redeemer, and that Egypt's gods and Egypt's king are helpless. You know, verse 9 and 10 of our passage today summarize the story so far. Right? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then verse 10 is a bit like a summary statement that closes off this part of Exodus right before we begin, right before the 10th plague begins. 
He says, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, due to Pharaoh's stubbornness, the plagues grow more severe from causing some kind of inconvenience and discomfort to death. The number 10 represents completion. So taken together, all these 10 signs show the glorious perfections of the Lord. The 10th plague that we'll look at today, uh, it stands apart from the nine. So you have three groups of threes, and then the 10th kind of stands on its own. The death of Egypt's firstborn, the tenth sign, is the climax, the, the culmination of the, nine, the first nine signs. And our text introduces this final plague in two parts, right? what the Lord will do and how he will do it. Right? What will the Lord do? He will save. How will he do it? By judging. God saves by judging. So let's look first at God saves, verses 1 to 3. I read the passage earlier, so I won't read it again, but it's verses 1 to 3. Now, we pick up the story at the end of chapter 10. So, let me, let's, let's go into chapter 10 for a bit. The Lord has brought the ninth plague upon Egypt, covering the land in darkness. And then Pharaoh tries to bargain with Moses. So, in verse 24 of chapter 10, he says, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Right? So it's still bargaining. Uh, Moses refuses to compromise, insisting that all of Israel's people and animals be allowed to leave. Uh, just a side note here, I think it's encouraging to see how f- Moses has grown. You notice how Moses has grown in his boldness. Moses has grown in his clarity about what God is calling him to do and what God's calling him to say to Pharaoh. Now, Moses has grown from fear to faithfulness. He stands his ground with Pharaoh, doing and saying as the Lord has commanded him. You know, friends, we may be tempted to compromise in the face of difficulty or opposition. But I think Moses is a wonderful example to us. Not, not, of, not so much about our ability to stand firm, but rather of God being with him. So God promised to be with Moses, and that's what enabled Moses to stand firm in the, place of, in, the, in the face of difficulty. And this same God is also able to help us to trust and obey Him, especially when we face trials and opposition. Now, chapter 10, in chapter 10, the meeting between Moses and Aaron ends really badly. You know, essentially, Pharaoh kicks Moses out and threatens to kill him. Right, verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. So Pharaoh issues a death threat, a warrant for Moses' death. Angered by Pharaoh's stubbornness, Moses replies, as you say, I will not see your face again. So so it's helpful for us to understand that Moses' response to Pharaoh is is not a temper tantrum, he's not losing his temper, but, but Moses is reflecting the righteous indignation of God. Moses' anger reflects how he is righteously indignant because God is opposed again and again by this king. Uh, Chapter 10 kind of ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with these words, I will not see your face again. 
So what's going to happen next? You know, if, if, you were making, if you were producing a TV series, this would be a good place to end. <laughs> right? Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. Well, chapter 10 ends on a cliffhanger, and we wonder how many more signs. You know, remember that we're not told how many signs there will be. Right? We're not told up front how many signs there will be. So how many more signs will the Lord have to bring upon Egypt before Pharaoh lets the people go? How long will this last? No, just, as it, just as it looks as though things are stuck at an impasse, God again intervenes. You know, isn't it often the case that we see the glories of God's salvation most clearly when our situation is the most desperate so the Lord speaks to Moses while he is still at Pharaoh's court. I think that's the amazing thing about chapter 11. This is happening while Moses is still there. Right, right after he said, I will not see your face again, this is where chapter 11 is happening. The Lord speaks to Moses while he's still there and he says, yet one more plague, just one more. Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt and that will break Pharaoh and he will let you go. I think you see God's gracious reassurance of his servant in chapter 11. You know, he, he speaks to Moses saying, I'm with you still. I am for you and for your people and, and my purpose will continue to go forward. Nothing that Pharaoh has done can thwart that. So God graciously reassures Moses of his purpose which Pharaoh cannot derail and it shows again that the sovereign Lord is in control, absolute control. There will be one more plague. So this is all according to God's plan. There will be one more sign, a tenth and final one. And this sign will be the climax of a process orchestrated by God from the beginning. And he will see it through to the end. Now, in fact, this is where we find the word plague first used in Exodus you know, we've been, talk, we've been calling them ten plagues, but actually this is the first time the word plague is used. And it's an interesting word because the, plague, the word plague refers to a physical blow. You know, when you hit someone, that, that's the word that's used. So God likens the judgments on Egypt to these physical blows that are coming on Egypt again and again. Just as Aaron used his staff to strike the water in the Nile, so God will strike Egypt and its king. And in this 10th strike, Pharaoh's resistance will be broken. You know, in rescuing the Israelites and judging Egypt, the Lord shows he is faithful to his covenant with Abraham. You know, if, if you read these verses in verse 1 to 3, there's a lot of similarity between these verses and Genesis 15, verse 13. In Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord promised Abraham with these words, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So verses 1 to 3 are an echo of Genesis 15 verse 13. It shows that God is faithful to his promises. He remembers his covenant as we read earlier in Exodus 2. And now the Lord will keep his word to Abraham and his offspring. He will judge Egypt and bring his people out 
with Egypt's wealth. You know, this is four centuries of waiting. I think sometimes we read these narratives and we think things are happening really quickly, but this is four centuries of waiting. You know, just, just imagine, right? Imagine someone made a promise to you in 1593. That's how long ago, right? Someone made a promise to you in 1593, and that promise is about to be fulfilled. You know, think about it, that's 400 years of waiting, or 430 years, as, as later on it says in passages in Exodus. Yeah, my, my math is a bit off today. <laughs> so 400 years of waiting, but the Lord keeps His word. The time has come for the Lord to fulfill His promise. I think this encourages us, beloved, that we can trust God to work out His plan according to His timetable. And I think those, those, two, those last two words are so important, right? His timetable. And we need to realize that His timetable can be way beyond our lifetimes. I think that's the humbling thing about trusting the Lord, that the fulfillment of His promises can stretch way beyond our lifetimes. And we can labor now in this present time, be faithful, but we may not see the fruit of our labor. No, just, just, just look around. I mean, we're in this very comfortable building, there are many of us here. Well, well, we stand on the shoulders of many of those who've gone before. The, the, the saints who started Grace Baptist Church, they labored faithfully, but they didn't see the fruit of their labor, did they? Many of them passed away before now. But, but we enjoy the fruit of their labor. Why? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. So, so we labor now in faithfulness, trusting that He will keep His word, even if we don't live to see the fruition of our labor. I mean, that, that encourages us to keep going on, to keep going on, even in the face of difficulty, because we can trust God to work out His plan according to His timetable. The waiting may be long and hard, 430 years, but God is never late. So take heart, beloved, and continue to hope in Him. Uh, I think one of the most real and encouraging verses in the Psalms is, in, is found in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You know, not only will Pharaoh allow Israel to go, but he will kick Israel out. <laughs> he will drive the people away completely, as chapter 11 tells us. The final plague will be so severe that Pharaoh will not hesitate to send Israel out of Egypt. You know, previously, Moses was trying to persuade Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was saying, yeah, I can go, but this, but that, but this, but that. But this time, Pharaoh will just say to Moses, leave, please. Get out and good riddance. Pharaoh will stop bargaining and let the Israelites leave with everyone and everything. They're young and old, all their possessions and livestock. I mean, even with Egypt's wealth. You know, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. You know, will we trust Him to work according to His timetable? Will we trust Him to work all things for our good in His time. And that's what living by faith looks like. In the meantime, our responsibility is simply to be faithful, to trust Him, to obey Him in what He has told us to do. I think we see God's goodness. As He saves Israel, we see His goodness in providing 
for his people as well. The Israelites leave with Egypt's silver and gold, and then this silver and gold will sustain them for their wilderness wanderings until they reach the promised land. Now, this wealth that they leave with will also be used to build the tabernacle for worship. Right? That's their building program, right? How will they fund their building program? God provides. Egypt's silver and gold. So all this is possible only because God gave them favor with the Egyptians. So none of this would be possible if God did not do that. Isn't that amazing that, that these former slaves are leaving the employ of their former masters, not on good terms, but their former masters are happy to let them go with all their treasure. I mean, who thinks of something like this? Only God. Now, even Moses himself was well regarded, even by Pharaoh's servants. Verse 3. You know, I, think, I think in this, you see how God truly triumphs over Pharaoh. Even his servants, those who are members of his household, his trusted aides, even they take Moses' side. This is a complete and utter victory of God over Pharaoh. And it shows that the sovereign Lord can change hearts. I think we often make the mistake of trying to please people to get their approval. You know, and, and pleasing man is tough, right? It's very exhausting because who do you please? Right? You know, if you please someone, then this person gets upset, so maybe you try to please that person, then that person will get upset. You know, it's really very complicated and very, very exhausting if we're trying to please everyone all the time. But we often make the mistake of trying to earn favor from people. Right? We try to do what we can to somehow manipulate them or, or plead with them to, to like us or try to do things that make them like us. You know, those of us who work, we, we know the pain of dotted line bosses. Right? You, know, you, you report to one boss, but then you report to this other boss and this other thing, and they don't get along. And then when they don't, when they don't get along, everyone under them just suffers. Right? I, I think we, we all experience that. But, but I think here in this passage, we're reminded that God is the one who gives us favor with men. What does Moses do? Moses doesn't try to curry favor with Egypt or Pharaoh. Moses simply trusts and obeys God. So we serve one master. You know, it's, it's wonderfully clarifying. You know, it kind of lifts all that fog and confusion off, right? Because we serve one master. We have no dotted line bosses. We have no man that we need to please. Not this person, not that person. We have to worry about how they get upset with each other if we don't kind of please all of them at once. No, we serve one master. We serve an audience of one. So stop trying to please people to get their approval. Instead, our aim should be to please God and trust Him to grant us favor with people. The more we try to please people, the more exhausted and burnt out we'll get, the more confused we'll become. Moses tells us in this passage, right, please God, please God, and He will grant us favor with His people according to His will. So in our workplaces, for example, we should work hard, do our jobs well, not to curry favor with our bosses, dotted line or otherwise, 
but we work hard and do our best because we seek to glorify God. And we work not ultimately for man, but for the Lord. And we can, we can be content that he sees and he's pleased, even if our boss never notices us. Even if in that moment we don't have favor with man, but we can trust God that he sees and he notices and he is the one whom we should please. You know, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, beloved, see how God enables by his grace what he requires. You know, this is grace right here in verses 1 to 3. Unlike Pharaoh, God is not a harsh taskmaster who demands that we make bricks without straw. The sovereign Lord is a loving Father who knows what we need for life and godliness, and He gives us the spiritual and physical resources we need to live for Him. I think it's timely to hear from Jesus on this. Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think this passage is a wonderful reminder of the Lord's sovereign provision for His people. As a church, I think that encourages us to be generous, to not hoard our resources, but to be generous in giving, not not for ourselves, to, to make ourselves more comfortable, but to give for the work of the gospel here and beyond. I think our budget, our giving shows that we trust God and not money. So we use what He has entrusted to us for the work of His kingdom, trusting that He is able to provide. And that's why I prayed earlier that when we attend the annual general meeting or when we attend any church meeting, whether it's the budget or anything, you know, we, we come with a spirit of trust that God, we can trust you. We can entrust these things to you and we can use them well for the sake of your kingdom. That's what it means to be a church that's thankful to God and we depend on Him to provide for us. So God saves. This is one to three. But we, we, we go on to think about how God saves by judging. And for that, we'll look at verses 4 to 8, especially. God will save by judging. Uh, these verses describe how the Lord will judge Egypt through the final plague. Now, this isn't the first time that God has spoken of the death of Egypt's firstborn. In Exodus 4, 21 to 23, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God's people are God's firstborn son, his treasured possession. You know, God adopts them, as it were, and He will not stand idly by while they are being mistreated and oppressed. Now, beloved, in Christ, we are God's beloved. He will care for and protect us because we are precious to Him. We, we are the apple of His eye, the treasure, His treasure. You know, for this reason, 
the Lord will judge Egypt. He is jealous for the well-being of his people. Now, what father wouldn't give his life for the welfare of his child? That's exactly what the Lord is doing here. The Lord will bring judgment on Egypt because he is jealous for the good of his firstborn son. And his word initiates this final plague. No, in fact, you notice know, something peculiar about this final sign. Verse 4, God says, I will go out. I will go out. You know, this sets this tenth sign apart from the other signs. You know, in the other signs, God worked through creation, right? He had animals, fly, insects, etc. But in this sign, he himself comes. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. No, God's, God's presence is a f- terrible thing. God's presence is a terrible thing. Because if He comes in judgment, then how shall sinners stand in the presence of an all-consuming holy God? His presence is a terrible thing. We should rightly be fearful of the Lord. The Lord is a just God. Egypt has enslaved and oppressed the Israelites as well as murdered Israel's sons. But God hears the cries and groans of his downtrodden people. God remembers his covenant with them. So take heart. If we belong to God, we can be sure that he sees, that he knows our affliction. Some of us may be suffering unjustly, whether in the home or in our school, or in our workplaces. And when we suffer unjustly, God's righteousness and His justice are our comfort and hope. So we don't have to take matters into our own hands. When we are sinned against, we don't have to sin in return. We don't have to give as good as we get. Why? Because we, we rest in God's righteousness and justice. I think that's why Paul tells us in the New Testament, repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know, for, for God's beloved, His wrath is an encouraging thing. His wrath is a good thing because He will vindicate His people and He will finally put right all the wrongs. The, the fact that God is wrathful encourages us with the knowledge that he will finally make things right. And that's our hope and comfort, but only if we belong to the Lord. Only if we belong to the Lord. Then we're able to love our enemies because we trust God to put right all the wrongs. So all of Egypt's firstborn will die. God's judgment falls on all regardless of status or rank. So, no matter how rich or powerful you think you may be, judgment will fall on you. Verse 5, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, all the way down, from the greatest to the least, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill. All come under judgment, without distinction. This is especially humbling, isn't it? Because our society is obsessed with status. 
And our society assumes that those with higher status, those who are better educated, those who are more successful will somehow be more moral and somehow do better than those who are less educated or less successful. I think, I think these verses put paid to that false assumption that we so easily make, especially in this society. You know, our society is obsessed with branding and brands. I'm not sure whether you followed the recent debate about what counts as a luxury bag. Now, we chase after brand names, whether it's clothing we wear, the car we drive, the place we live, the company we work for, or the schools we attend. You know, these are brand names, right? We care about what happens to these schools because they're branded. Now, why do we care so much about brands? Why do we care so much about brands? I think one reason is because we want to make distinctions. We care so much about brands because we want to make distinctions among ourselves between the haves and the have-nots, between the insiders and the outsiders. So we like to think of ourselves as better, as different, as distinct, as somehow more successful than the next person. How do we do that? Brands. Right? Brands are the signal that tell other people that we are different. But we need to read verse 5. The Lord brings judgment on all without distinction. The truth is that we are more alike than we like to think. For in God's eyes, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Instead of worshipping the true God, the Egyptians gave themselves to their idols. You know, we need to realise and we need to understand that sin isn't just doing bad things. You know, one can be a moral person and still be a sinner. Sin isn't, doing, isn't just doing bad things because sin is fundamentally a failure to worship. Sin is fundamentally a failure to worship God and to give thanks to Him. Therefore, all have sinned because none of us has perfectly lived for God's glory. None of us. We may have tried to live moral lives, but none of us has lived perfectly for the glory of God. And like the Egyptians, and we are more alike to them than we care to admit. Like the Egyptians, we deserve God's righteous judgment. Paul tells us in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, Jesus himself spoke honestly, plainly, about God's wrath on sinners unless we trust in him for salvation. John 3, you know, if you read on John 3, right to the end of John 3, Jesus says these words, or rather John, actually, he's, he's saying these words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. I think that, that verb is so helpful, so, so striking. The wrath of God remains on him. That means it's, it's already there. We are already under God's wrath apart from Jesus. And if we do not come to Jesus, that wrath remains on us. God, who is perfectly holy and righteous, is just 
to judge sinners. You know, verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Do you see the poetic justice in what's happening here? Egypt, whose oppression caused Israel to cry out for help, will now cry out in grief over the loss of their firstborn. Poetic justice. Pharaoh's son was the prince of Egypt, the next in line to the throne. More than that, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh himself was a god. So his son is the successor to the gods. And his son's death will prove that the Lord is the true God. And God will save Israel by judging Egypt. And while Egypt will suffer death, Israel will be spared. Verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. Ah, the Lord makes a distinction. That's interesting. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I think the mention of a dog there is fascinating. It may, some commentators think it may be a reference to the Egyptian god Anubis, the god of the underworld, who is often depicted as a dog. So the Lord, not Egypt's idols, rules over life and death. As a result of the plague, Pharaoh's servants will bow down and they will plead with Israel to get out of Egypt. But, but we have this rather interesting question. Why does God distinguish between Egypt and Israel? I mean, we've just talked about how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so why does God make a distinction between Egypt and Israel? No, it, it's certainly not because Israel was more righteous. You, know, you, you only have to read on in Exodus to realize how Israel itself was sinful. So is, Israel is not... So God doesn't make Israel distinct because Israel is better than Egypt. You know, there's nothing inherently different between an Israelite and an Egyptian. But God, by His grace alone, is being faithful to His promises to Abraham and His descendants. The sovereign Lord shows mercy, not because Israel was deserving, but simply because He is loving and gracious. You know, Deuteronomy 7 puts it very clearly, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, what God says, or rather Moses in his speech to Israel, in his sermon to Israel, says these to them, says these words to them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loves Israel. Why? Because God loves Israel. He's simply being true to his word, being true to his promises. You know, but if Israel is also guilty of sin and deserving of judgment, then how can God be just to save Israel? Now, our passage doesn't say, but the answer is found in the next chapter. You know, the threat of death from the final plague falls on all without distinction. I think that's a striking thing about the last sign. Right? In the other signs, God makes a distinction, so Israel doesn't get the brunt of the plague, but the Egyptians do. But in this last sign, that the threat of death falls on everyone. 
So Israel has to take action by faith in order to avert the calamity of the final plague. Right? The threat of death falls on all, but those who trust in the blood of the Passover lamb will be saved. And we're jumping ahead a bit, but look at verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God makes a distinction. Why? Because of the blood of the lamb. The lamb is a substitute dying in the place of sinners that they may be spared God's judgment. As it says in Exodus 34, God is gracious and merciful. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. But Exodus 34 also says that God will by no means clear the guilty. He is righteous and just to punish sin. So Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, make the point that God's love and His wrath are not opposed to each other. For God will save in a way that upholds His holiness and justice while also displaying His grace and His love. Therefore, God must save by judging. How? I think that's the mystery of the Old Testament. How will God save by judging? How will He receive sinners and not consume them in His wrath? How? Our friends, we, we, we praise and give thanks to God because we live on this side of the cross of Christ. The cross is where God's judgment and mercy meet. At the cross, God's love is magnified, but His wrath is also satisfied. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Sarah read for us earlier, the serpent was a cursed creature, and the Israelites are meant to look to this cursed creature for salvation, the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And just as the serpent was lifted up, so Jesus was lifted up on the cross, this cursed creature whom we look to for our salvation. Jesus became a curse for us, and He bore God's wrath in our place so that we can be forgiven if we have faith in Christ alone. Now, God Himself has come not to judge, but to take on flesh and to be our Saviour. God the Father gave His beloved Son to suffer and die that He might bring many sons to glory. Jesus is described in the New Testament as God's firstborn. Even as God killed Egypt's firstborn, God will kill His firstborn. Jesus laid down His life, the firstborn laid down His life to make us children of God. Why? John 3.16, because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, He gave His firstborn so that He will not have to kill our firstborn, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And by believing in God's firstborn, we become His firstborn, His beloved sons and daughters. So our Heavenly Father has made a distinction and set us apart from Himself, not because we are deserving, not because we are particularly good or lovely, 
but he has made a distinction simply because of his grace, his mercy, and his love. And our response should be to wonder, why? Why should we, of all people, be called children of God? Why? There is no reason. Nothing inherent in us, simply because Jesus is good. God saves by judging. The gospel is good news because God has saved us through His Son, who took on Himself God's judgment against us for our sins. And in Christ alone, our hope is found. Oh, beloved, we owe everything to Christ. Everything. He has redeemed us for worship. So therefore, we can die to ourselves. I think because God saves by judging, we can stop being judgmental. We can put to death our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness, because the firstborn has been killed for us. And we are able to live for the glory of God who gave His only Son for us. Now, I love the opening stanza of our closing hymn. It's worth saying it now. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me who Him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. Let's pray together.